Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. This is our eighth episode. It is sometime in late May. Um, May what? 21. I think it's the 23rd of May. Um, We have a great guest for you today. Her name is Jenny Chan. She is a professor at Hong Kong Polytechnic. She's going to be talking to us about the situation in Hong Kong right now as it seems like there's some, I guess, resumption of the protests that were going on earlier. But she's also going to be talking to us about labor conditions and the labor struggle, both in Hong Kong and in China. Um, right now, I have my two guests, uh, Tammy and Andy. How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, good. Andy, are you we just guests now? Did you just move? <laughs> I did, just like you last week. It's exhausting. But uh, is it weird to move in a pandemic in in Pennsylvania? So we uh, we made this decision not to. Um, have other people pack our stuff this was like at the height of corona panic and now i'm exhausted because uh packing your own stuff is just like exhausting it's not just it's like it's physically exhausting it's also mentally exhausting wait wait so before you would have like your norm is having other people pack your i've never heard of yeah i'm amazed (laughs) what are you a billionaire come on (laughs) i thought this was maybe i'm outing myself my Wait, so people would come into your house and like yeah, pick up you your books and put them in a yeah. box? I've only had that know. happen yeah. once. And that was when I moved from San Francisco to LA because I joined uh, ESPN. And as part of my right, package yeah. of joining on, they like had yeah. this amazing moving <laughs> moving service. I yeah, and no, so, pack up my stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's usually, it's been through a company uh, in the past. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's super quick because they do it all for you. But this time, uh, uh, yeah, you have to make all these decisions about do I actually like keep half the stuff, and you feel terrible because you actually have way too much stuff, and you uh, bought too many like small plastic things, and you feel bad because you don't want to throw them away <laughs> and destroy the environment. But uh, you know, are you giving stuff? We're away? trying our best. You know, um, I, I like gave away a bunch of stuff to grad students and neighbors and you know whoever. <laughs> yeah, I got rid of like sixty percent of my books when I moved out here to California. Oh my God. Where did you give them to? Which was very satisfying. I, we had a basement <laughs> uh, library in our apartment building in Brooklyn where you could just drop off books. Wow. And so I just dumped a whole bunch of books there, and it was it was amazing. <laughs> I I think that owning a lot of books is really stupid, but I still have a lot of books. But I can't quite bring myself to get rid of all of them and just download them onto like an iPad no. or something like that. But yeah, it's no, not the same. Yeah. You, I, I don't find myself reading physical books at all anymore. And so it's even more ridiculous. What do you, like, do you read, yeah, I have what like, do you read it on? I just, I don't read, first of all, I don't read books <laughs> anymore. <laughs> you, you read Twitter. <laughs> yeah, let's start there. Uh, the amount of books I read. You look at screenshots. <laughs> a, a year has, has gone way down. But I, I, I guess I would say that I read probably about one book on my phone every two months. What? And you read so on your I phone? Read like, on your phone? Yeah, I just like lay in bed and read Whoa. it on my phone on awesome. i iBooks and it's it's very unsatisfying. So the last one I read like that was uh what did I read? Um I read like the Rachel Cusk novels on my on my iPhone. Oh wow. And I was like this is first of all I did not I don't get what the big deal is, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I only read the first one. Did you like it? It was okay. Yeah, I also didn't like gel with it. I don't know. Oh, yeah. So for our listeners who will care and don't know, Rachel Cuss <laughs> is a British novelist, right? And she writes 
sort of very Sebaldian uh, meditative books, and they're all about like a woman professor who is on leave or, you know, for a semester or something like that, and goes to Italy as the first book, right? And she has conversations. And so um, I understand why it's an extremely literary book because nothing happens and it's about interiority. But at the same time, I was like not particularly compelled by the interiority within it. You know, it seemed like kind of austere mm -hmm. and mean in a way that I did not actually find compellingly mean. I don't know. What'd you think, Tammy? Yeah. I was just like, I was like, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Our taste is for more like outward meanness. <laughs> yeah. Like it was, <laughs> it was like the, it was like the profile of somebody that I know very intimately because of my own circles and Tammy and Andy, <laughs> yeah. I imagine that you also do, but that this person is also the type of person that I generally don't have great objections to, but I'm also extremely bored by, you know, where I'm just like, <laughs> oh, you're, you know, like I, your like prejudices are boring to me and I don't think that there needs to be much exploration of them. And the hard edge of your politics is always sort of self-centered in a way that you don't examine. And I actually think that that's like on Rachel Cusk. I don't think it's a character because I've read Rachel Cusk's like other criticism and I just find that all of her work suffers from this, you know, even when it's her speaking as herself as a critic. Anyway, that's much more. I don't know why I'm driving Rachel Cuss takes on our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, we do have a few uh, topics that we wanted to go through before we um, got have Jenny on. Um, this is something that happened this past week that I thought was amazing and went underneath the radar and I actually think is its own type of kind of shock doctrine type of thing. Mm -hmm. Did you see that the University of California is no longer uh, taking the SAT? Right, right. Yeah. In its admissions, it's no longer considering yeah. it. Um, now, this decision was met with the typical and expected type of backlash from Asian-American leaders. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say it's not just the Asian-American leaders that you would expect, you know, like people like Yukong Zhao or people who are sort of part of this uh, anti-affirmative action campaign but it was it was much more widespread and it was it was decried i think as an anti-asian method and an anti-asian legislation and that the only reason you would ever do this was to have less asian students at these schools and you know as we all know but maybe our listeners don't although i'm sure they do uh the percentage of asian students at the ucs is enormously high so here in berkeley i think it's about four, 35 to 40 percent that's one of the lowest in in the uc yeah. system places like uc irvine are over 50 percent asian ucla i think it's wow. close to 50 percent yeah. um if you go to places like uc riverside it's even higher um what do you guys think do you think like you know like speaking as frankly as possible <laughs> like do you think there's a large element of this that is to make it so there are less asian kids on wait campus? before before that <laughs> do you know do you guys know all these acronyms that people made up for uh is UC, like UCI is University of Chinese Immigrants? No, no, just answer okay. the question. Let's answer the question. Like, <laughs> it, like do you think, like, don't deflect, don't, don't, don't go away. Do you think that this, like, and come up with, like, lists of acronyms? Like, do you think this is, do you think there's a part of this? Let's say even 10%, which is just to make sure that the schools are less Asian. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost impossible <laughs> to. Okay. Not, 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 again, not because, like, they deep down, like, hate Asians. Yeah, like for some like uh, some like tribal or primitive reason, I think it's like Asians just kind of get stuck in this pincer movement of of race, racial debates in this country, 
where the country is majority white. Yeah. And then there's a lot of pushback to have more black and Latino students. Um, and it is probably the case that Asians just are just kind of get, you know, they're kind of seen as expendable for better, for worse. Well, and this has always been one of the, the strategies on the table to address a post affirmative action reality. Yeah. Right? I mean, what else do you do? And we know that these tests are biased and generally bad. I think. Do right? we know I mean, the tests are biased? Like, what do you I, mean by the SAT? So, isn't there is a biased? lot of no. research on that? I, I read on this no, a long time so. no, ago. It's, it's totally biased really? and classist. I but think my they question are. is what is less classist than biased? And I'm not sure that the proposed alternatives yeah. of like, uh, you know, more personal essays and interviews and sort of intangible measurements, I'm not sure those are any less classist or racist or biased. I actually kind of think that if you think about it, um, who would benefit the most um, from that type of process than people with the right networks, born into the right families, born with yeah. the right, you know, don't... Sure, there's gaming And I for think sure. the SAT, I mean, I, I'd be happy to be proven wrong, but my position up until this point, and I'm also, you know, we're all biased probably because I, I definitely like owed a lot of my <laughs> life to like good test scores, but uh, the SAT does allow you to like not know a single, you know, fucking person at an Ivy League school and get into it just by studying really hard. Yep. And I, I don't know any other way I could have, you know, um, got into a good school. Because uh, I didn't... Especially if you don't come from one of these feeder schools, yeah. right? So if right. you go to, like, Thomas Jefferson in, in, uh, in Northern Virginia, and you are the top student there, um, you're going to get into Harvard. Like, but if mm -hmm. you are from... Like, I hate that this is the example that is always used, but Charles Murray is the one who always says, like, the SAT, I was just like some kid from bumfuck Iowa or Indiana or wherever he's from. And the SAT is how I got into whatever school. He, like, I think he right. did go to Harvard. Um, now, Andy, this is not to equate you to Charles Murray, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> more, more in common than but, you would imagine. But there, but the, <laughs> do you have a do you have like a phrenology chart in your in your new house? Exactly. Like there's a uh, you know there, there's some truth to what he's saying, and that it seems to be difficult to disentangle. Like I I, I spent two years like thinking about this because I was writing that ridiculous article yeah. I ended up writing about affirmative action in Asia really at Harvard for the reader for listening. Thank you. you should read it. It's in the Times Magazine. I I ended up talking to a lot of admissions people. And I looked at a lot of admissions files at Harvard. And, you know, like, it, it, like you go into it kind of hoping for the sake of humanity that the right wing is not right about this. You know, <laughs> that people, that the, that the Asian American activists are not right in saying that there's blatant discrimination from NPR listening uh, admissions officers. <laughs> but, like, it's not like there's blatant in discrimination in the sense that they feel like Asian Americans or Asian people are less than or they feel like they're inherently boring but there is discrimination in the same way that there is at all levels where if you have certain class indicators in your essay you know if you can touch certain if you know what to talk about for those essays if you know how to present yourself in an interview it's a huge benefit you know and so how do you know how to present yourself in an interview well you know exactly you just have to be the type of person that is a lot like the type of people who are giving interviews at these places and for some like Asian kid who grew up, let's say, in like, I don't know, like, like Westminster, California or something like that. And they don't know. They just hung out with a bunch of Vietnamese kids. Right. 
like that person going to Yale and going and giving an interview, they're always going to seem like kind of like a grind to the, to the white, you know, like media savvy, like, uh, literary person that's giving their interview and that type of discrimination is very real. And look, you can, the, the counter argument to this that I found, you know, that was, that came all the time when this point was brought up was not a refutation of that, but was rather a sense that going to Yale doesn't matter. You know, like that person would be totally fine going to UCLA or something like that. Right. Um, which so I, was it at the interview stage that that was happening? Yeah, the interview stage because it was all locked up in the personal rating, right? Like the and so yeah, that was. I thought that was based on the forum. As it, that was it, based it was on the essay and okay. the interview, okay. and like there is all this ridiculous. The thing that that ended up really actually like changing my mind about a lot of this stuff and was upsetting to me in a way was like there was guidance within the within the Harvard guidebooks to people who are reading mm-hmm. the admissions packets like the the applications to Uh look at the essays of people who are minorities and if they don't write about the ways in which they their being a minority was an obstacle to them you know like if they weren't Mm -hmm. writing oppression Mm -hmm. porn that they should not consider that person a minority they should just consider them white it's disgusting you know like there's no way to think about it except it being disgusting it's like like, it's the most exclusive place in the world, basically, just right. being like, ah, tell me your story. Right. So, you know, and I, maybe I'll give you 30 extra points on the SAT if your story, like, makes me Jesus. cry enough, <laughs> you know? And like, So that was their, like, post-affirmative action fix? Uh, well, the they, idea, I mean, they what? still use affirmative action. Yeah, like, they're probably you know. Right. But, like, they were trying, were they trying to adjust to legal scrutiny around affirmative action? Like, uh, yes, why yes, was that yes, in the... Uh, okay, yes, yeah, yes. So, like, just... tighten, like, every... Supreme Court decision tightened it a little bit, right? So Bollinger right, exactly. tightened it a little bit. Abigail Fisher tightened it a right. little bit. And so with each tightening, there needs to be sort of a loosening on the other mm-hmm. end so that they can continue exactly, yeah. doing, uh, having the distribution of students that they want, which I think is good. Like, you know, you shouldn't have Harvard have no black students right. and no Latino right. students, which is essentially what would happen if, if these types of measures weren't in place. Um, right. And I... Look, I, the SAT thing for me, I just was like, well, of course it's, an, you know, like, of course in, in the most classic sense, it's anti-Asian, you know, like that's why they're doing it because they, they, because California obviously doesn't have affirmative action, right? Like because of. Right. At all. Um, proposition. And, and what happened was that like right after Proposition 23 or 19, I, I, Mixing the two in my head. One is much worse than the other one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Proposition uh, passed, uh, you know, like a UCLA went, like there are no black students who got into UCLA the year afterwards, right? And so um, to combat that, they did the, if you're, you know, in one of the valedictorians of your school, then you get into whatever UC school you want automatically. So similar to how at, in Texas, they combated the end of affirmative action by saying that if you're in the top 10% of your school, you can go to the University of Texas, right? Um, That has not resulted in enough diversity at schools like Berkeley, where there's almost no black students. Like, Mm. you can feel it walking around. And so this is just another measure, I think, so that they can do the holistic type of admissions that they want to do. But, like, again... I think in, in theory it's great. And yet I like 
it's so obvious like why they're doing it Ra- you know rather than anti-asian i wonder if a better way to frame it is that they're pitting groups against other groups in a zero sum i mean so the problem is the whole system is this terrible darwinian zero something yeah. where my friend uh Jacob Shell has pointed this out. I'll, I'll steal his take that we have the same amount of Ivy Leagues in 2020 as we did in like 1800, where the population is, you know, however many times greater. And so, like, if, if this country were to be proportional, we'd have like 50 Ivy League schools and it wouldn't be that big a deal to get into Harvard or Yale. Yeah, or Harvard would be uh, like 40,000 right. undergrads yeah. instead of like 5,000. But isn't that the least consequential? I mean, who cares about the Ivy Leagues? We want people to go to well, state schools sure. and to be treated fairly there. Are you just talking about the pressure valve up from the Berkeleys yeah, exactly. of the world? Like from, from the Ivies to the UCs to the best public schools, like there's yeah. just been a, there's this, this terrible effect where the, there's a huge race to the top where everything beneath the top is mm-hmm. kind of, you know, progressively devalued. And, uh, you know, you could say that this particular case, Jay, is hurting Asians, but it's a system that's set up so that some group has to be hurt. And yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I don't, I think that that in that sense, I guess that what I would say is that if we use the standards that we use uh, to say that things are anti X group, Mm -hmm. right. That by any standards, this would be defined as anti-Asian, right? Like that, 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 that it is. But my fear is listeners are specifically engineered. My, my, my fear is that that framing of anti-X group, if we don't criticize the framing itself, people are just going to push back. Like, well, what about my group? What about my group? What you? No, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think this is a good idea, you know? Like, I think yeah. that I think they should do this. I just think that it is a tricky thing for them to do right. without inspiring mass backlash sure. from... And also, like, you know, like, and this is something I'm very concerned about, which is, like, you know, there's a lot of data that has started coming out showing that Asian Americans don't vote very much, you know, that they have the lowest voter participation. Mm-hmm. And that is changing. And in part, that's changing because of this affirmative action mm-hmm. stuff. Like in New York City, people started voting and becoming politically organized because of the SHSAT and what was happening oh with Stuyvesant, you know. And the more of this type of stuff that happens, I think the further right Asian Americans yeah. as a group will become. And that is generally true when I talk to, especially for this piece where I talk to a lot of Asian American kids. Like, I didn't talk to like a, a kid who didn't think that they were being discriminated yeah. against across the board. Like, yeah. The wokest kids at like Hunter High School, you know, which is like, and like the smartest kids, these kids are going to like Yale, Columbia, Harvard. Um, they have like the perfect politics, you know, and like a diverse group of friends. And when you ask them, like, do colleges discriminate against, discriminate against you? They all say, of course they do. You know, like, you'd have to be stupid to not think that. And, you know, for those type of smart kids who, are, who have all the opportunities, they're going to have the magnanimity, whatever the magnanimity. word is, they're going to be magnanimous <laughs> enough to say, I don't need to indulge in this. But that is obviously a position of privilege to not have to indulge in that. The kids who didn't get in those schools and who are and didn't get into any schools and end up at... Baruch or City College or something like that, those are the ones that get super red pilled, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it is, I don't think it's like a thing that is ignorable or something that's small scale. I think it is happening on like a massive scale right now. And my concern is not with what the UC Berkeley does. Like, I don't, I don't care. Like, you know, my position is that they should just have all schools be open admission and that they should end this like ridiculous idea that one college is better than another college. Yeah. But you know, that's never going to happen. And within this system that we have right now, I am actually worried about like the political orientation of 
a younger generation of people who are having these things thrown in their face and being told that they're not what they obviously are, you know? Like, that's the thing that the people would just express frustration about to me, which is just wow. like, mm. everyone's lying, you know? Right. Obviously, this is what it is. And so what are you supposed to tell those people? Yes, it is what it is, and they are lying to you, but you should, like, vote, you know, you should be on that person's team the, the, who's yeah. lying The Gallup polls of the last few years are super striking in terms of Asian-American support for, for affirmative action has uh, plummeted. And if you break it down further, it's basically all new Chinese immigrants in particular. yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, like I'm sure all of us have hmm. Asian American friends who are just like really like feel heartbroken over this Harvard lawsuit, and it's uh, you know it's racist for Asians to to it's like, like the th the correct thing to do for Asians is to ally with their black uh, you know fellow people of color, like blah blah blah. Yeah. But I think like kind of like you, Jay, my my reaction is like not that like I'm anti-black or whatever. But I just think and that framing though is. You're asking people to vote against their own self-interest, and there's no political system in the world that's set up for that, right? Like the mm -hmm. point of democracy is to have people vote for their own self-interest. I mean, I guess that's majoritarianism, right? But like, there's no, that's not politically persuasive to say do this, do yeah. this to hurt yourself and you and your group, um, or else, you know, do do the right thing and hurt your own group because it's the right thing to do. Maybe the problem is that the choices that are being made available are not the right choices. No, I, yeah, and I agree. And I think that yeah. with the people who would say, like, you know, like, I, I found that the people who are the most stridently um, anti the Harvard lawsuit, meaning, like, pro-affirmative action, were also, like, the wealthiest people who had already gone to Harvard, you know? So it's like the Harvard mm -hmm. Alumni Association where, you know, you have lawyers and bankers and media people who are extremely wealthy who are screaming at these, you know, unwashed new Chinese immigrants who came over post Tiananmen Square, <laughs> you know, and they're just like, oh, I just don't understand them. And it's like, well, you don't understand them because first of all, they're a completely different group than you are. You know, like these are people who believe fervently in capitalism and are much more similar to the Cubans who immigrated to Florida and that they're going to be much more conservative to begin with. But secondly, like these people are at a different set point of immigrant progress than you are like you already made it mm -hmm. you know you're basically white and <laughs> you, like you can respond with with sort of like this privileged white guilt and i don't think that the messaging from the top you know which is like people like us i would say um but with worse politics than us and less cool than us you know like, <laughs> We're at like the top. <laughs> yeah naturally <laughs> um, scolding new immigrants is going to work. Like it's never going to work. Yeah. You know, like those people are just going to get there. They don't even understand what the scolding is for. Like, how are you going to scold <laughs> Yukong Zhao and be like, Yukong, like, have you considered, you know, like doing a panel with like, you know, <laughs> 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 like we can do a zoom panel hosted by, uh, you know, like, um, like uh, Skidmore college. And we can talk about this. Like, <laughs> Although I think we'd also be kidding ourselves if we said that all new immigrants or even most new immigrants who make it to that point are working class. No, yeah. I agree. Yeah. You know, Yukon so Zhao is pretty, richer than it's me. It's kind of complicated. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, I was curious, though, like what you guys have thought about, you know, the discourse around like class based affirmative action. Yeah, the that's, the, that, that's, that's the only solution that would make sense as affirmative action. But right. I think yeah. so. I don't know that. I mean, you know, you might know the history more between the both of your expertise, but at some point it got ruled, gets ruled out, right? Class-based in favor of race-based. 
Yeah. So okay. I mean, I do. I'm. I am someone you know intimate this, in this, but, but just like <laughs> so, the class based argument is the is the one that is made by the right wingers, right? Like mm. so. Right. Um, just the 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 Federalist Society yeah. wants it to be class based affirmative action because they also don't think I actually don't believe this, but they also don't they don't want to be go public and say that Harvard should just all be Asian and white, mm. right? And so they just say that using racial um, using racial standards is wrong and you should use you should actually help the poor kid in detroit which is this mythical poor kid that they always talk about like right. who grew up in the inner city whose parents uh are in jail and he studied himself up to become valedictorian of school and that you know because of his situation maybe he didn't do as well on the sat but he is much more impressive of a human being than somebody who was privileged their entire life and went to Andover. There's nobody who disagrees with that, I don't <laughs> think, in the world, right? Um, and that you can do that by using zip code-based affirmative action that mm -hmm. looks at Whoa. poorer neighborhoods. Wait, that's um, gonna just wind up, that's gonna incentivize people to move to the poor neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that. That has been that, an argument. This is this is Chinese history. But this that, is a service examination. Uh, <laughs> they would go yeah. out to like yeah. only Asians. Though, the whites will <laughs> stay. They go to these provinces <laughs> in the Southwest because they would be like the top. Read like there. a PO box in like uh, yeah in like Brownsville <laughs> to get your kid. Yeah, it's a uh, they that the disconnect between that argument, which seems very progressive to most people, if you talk, told them that in the street. It being presented by the Federalist Society, which is like the worst organization, yeah. just the most hardcore right wing yeah. libertarian organization. And then the sort of way in which these universities and their legal teams and places like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund say that that is unacceptable. Right. And um, it's very strange. Right. Because it should be an OK excuse. But the, obviously the reason why those places can't say that's an OK explanation is then how do you defend race-based um, decisions at all then? You know, yeah. that is the end of race-based affirmative action then if you, can, if you can find that elegant fix. The right wing knows that, which is why they push it, right? Because they know that if they mm -hmm. can present right. a plausible alternative that sure. it'll be done. And the problem that the left has in this and the problem that, that, not the left, but the problem that the progressives and the, you know, the people who run these universities have is that uh, they, the vast majority of people who are black and Latino in those universities are not, are not, are not like African Americans, right? They're not people who, who are the descendants of slaves. They're people who are, um, from Ghana. They're people who are immigrants from Nigeria. And it's something like 70% of black people at Harvard are immigrants from really? Western Africa or or the Caribbean. So that would be they would be kind of the and, upper class of where they came from. Yes. So these are people who come over with educated right. parents whose parents might be doctors who who go to private schools and then, you know, they get into yeah. these schools. And uh, it's caused a huge rift even within those schools, right? So at Cornell there was yeah. like uh, there was there was a movement among you know, which is similar to the ADOS movement, mm -hmm. which you see online quite a bit. But you know, their students Yep, the black students at Cornell, who are the African American students, you know, we're we're basically saying that there should be a different system of admissions for them than there are for yep. like Ghanaian and and Nigerian wealthy people. It's extremely ugly. It's like uh, it's a difficult and thorny question, 
But it's the type of question that when you ask somebody on the, uh, who is a proponent at these universities of affirmative action or their legal defense funds, they just, they don't answer it. They just call you racist for asking the question, you know? And so, um, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. But I do think something like getting rid of this SAT is like such a broad and obvious type of thing to do that maybe it'll just work, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I'm actually, I I don't know. I, I don't, I don't have any practical, um, counter solution. I actually am not a big fan of getting rid of the SAT. If there is a way to, I mean, the unspoken thing is like, if you have increased Asian admittance, increased, uh, black and Latino, like who's got to (laughs) go. It's the, it's the wealthy and the white, the traditional sort of student body of these top (laughs) schools. But you know, there's no way that there's no way that's going to concretely pass. Yeah, like if Harvard just got rid, you know, everyone said if Harvard got rid of legacy admissions, right. then um, you could right. fix all of that. But my counter to that was always like, the reason why you want to go to Harvard is because of the legacy admission kids that you're going to be <laughs> around. You know, like if I had to go to, <laughs> I was in my head, I, I, when I was explaining to people, I would, I, you know, this is, I, this is honestly how racist I am, but I would like think about like some like Chinese kid in Sunset Park named like, you know, like Bill Chang or something like that. And I'd be like, look, Bill Chang has been living around like his neighbor who's also <laughs> named Bill Chang and they've been friends their entire life since second grade. They went to Stuyvesant together and then they both go to Harvard and they have to live <laughs> together. Like, what's the fucking point, you know? <laughs> you want the, you, if, right. you're Bill, if you're Bill Chang, you want your roommate at Harvard to be Jared Kushner. Right. You know, you want him to be, you want him to have some access to things. You don't yeah. want, you don't want the, it, Facebook the other Bill Chang who's, who, yeah, whose dad like works at the same <laughs> restaurant that your dad works at. <laughs> How the fuck does that help you out? You know, like, like it doesn't help you out at all. Um, okay, so I completely squandered my education. <laughs> so our guest today is Jenny Chan. She is a professor at Hong Kong Polytechnic. We're very excited to have her on. Jenny, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you so much. It's really my great pleasure to talk to all of you on the smartphone. Uh. <laughs> and not <laughs> that's the most that's the most enthusiastic uh, hello that we've gotten iPhone. so far. So thank you. Oh. Um, uh, like, what, what is the situation around, you know, COVID-19 and the protests like right now in Hong Kong? Like, uh, I know that there was a little bit of, of uh, you know, that, that they were dialed back a little bit, because, obviously because of the coronavirus. Like, how, how are things looking right My now? My family is still fine, more or less okay. But it is not uh, for many others who are struggling to keep their jobs because of the shutdown of the shops, restaurants, tourism industry, and so on. So that is not good. Um, but in these few weeks, we have seen some people who get to the shopping mall to protest and they hang up the banner like independencies or Hong Kong at oil uh, because just last night we have heard about the strengthening of national security uh, over Hong Kong basically it is the annual congress in Beijing right now and uh, there had been the really intense discussion on national security legislation as you have all known also because the leaders from the US uh, UK and many other countries have shown their concern already so Jenny the pushback from a lot of pro-democracy people in Hong Kong are saying that this, uh, so for, for listeners who don't know, the Beijing government is now passing a security law that basically outlaws protesting 
Um, and along with that, they're not they're going to bypass the legislative body in Hong Kong uh, and directly kind of mandate it, it seems like unilaterally from Beijing, which is sort of the real um, novelty of this. So for a lot of protesters in Hong Kong, they're saying that this is the end of what was known as one country, two systems, where Beijing had promised Hong Kong they could kind of keep their own system for 50 years, right? So that would be like 2034. It's only 2020, right? Um, Do you agree with that assessment that this is the end, this is a new stage in history? So this is a place where I was born. I, I really feel a strong sense of belonging right here. And um, how we are going to ensure our basic and fundamental rights, the right to freedom of publication, freedom of speech. And where, while we are in the university, can we teach uh, the curriculum where what we design and talk about the one-party system in China or to explore the limitations yeah, in terms of some criticisms of our government leaders, but in a more constructive way. I'm not uh, declaring the death of Hong Kong uh, system yet. Uh, it is not yet uh, over. It is more about a way of life where this is our uh, society that we imagine and uh, we want to build it into a more open, democratic and transparent way. And these would em- embrace yeah. or uphold some of the universal uh, v- values and beliefs. Are, are people worried though, because it was such a strong mandate from, uh, you know, from the from the Chinese government, from the Congress saying that, you know, that basically, this was billed as an anti terrorism bill, right? Like it was it was saying that that student protesters and protesters in general in Hong Kong would be would be considered terrorists like that does seem like an escalation on on Beijing's side. Uh, Like, what is there? Is there a lot of fear right now going around in the in the in the protest community there in Hong Kong? Right. Uh, thanks for this very timely question. <laughs> so, right, <laughs> <laughs> so right now, yes, um, the, the level of fear and concern have been overwhelming uh, for about these mm. one to two days. We can see all the news headlines as well as TV um there have been many discussions about the fact that it is a more direct um, control or tightening of the space of the civil society in Hong Kong. And um, I, of course, also understand the background for this. It has been almost a year since the anti-government protests in Hong Kong. It has been so intense, involving the destruction, the destruction of the public properties uh, outside the police station (laughs) and also the government's headquarters. So these are the direct challenge or the very iconic actions and that had involved like millions of Hong Kong people. Well, we only have 7 million Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of the total population. So in terms of the numbers, uh, that is amazing. That is really high. And so far, to just give you some numbers, there have been more than 8,000, more than 8,000 Hong Kong people who were uh, arrested 
in the wave of protests so far, so from last year and also this year. Um, and more than 40%, more than 40% of these people who are being arrested were teenagers or young people, um, mainly students. Wow. So this really tells us some of the profound resistance also among the young people, those who were locally born, mm -hmm. who love Hong Kong so much and uh, are concerned about the human rights issues in China. How do you responsibly protest? How do you responsibly do street protests at a time when everybody's scared and when there's a real threat from this virus and where you might be irresponsible for going into a large space and screaming next to somebody else. Like, how have, how have people in Hong Kong, how have these pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong been dealing with, uh, with, with, with the question of how to responsibly protest? Right. Well, Hong Kong people are resilient and there would be a creative way to continue <laughs> the struggle. And there are many different ways uh, right now, we're just kind of breaking down um, the groups into the smaller ones. And um, mm -hmm. it is really admirable that there are young people in Hong Kong, the former student leaders, as well as some activists uh, who are studying in the secondary or universities, I mean, secondary schools or universities, as well as the politicians, people had already set up some booth uh, in uh, on the streets. So distributing some flyers, um, these are the direct way how to get in touch with the general population. Um, so there will be still street activities, just you are limited to not more than eight people right now. But these policies would right. not would not go forever, right? If the if we are uh, finding some more ways to express our voices, there are many different ways. Uh, people could still produce their podcast like what we are doing. There are also other ways that we can write. <laughs> yeah. So Writing, speaking up, and uh, debating, having some gatherings and actions, uh, these are still happening every day. Yeah, Jenny, um, I'm most familiar with your work on labor issues in China, and we want to ask you some questions about that. But I was curious if you could say, you know, what to what extent workers and labor activists and organizers and unions in Hong Kong have been involved in the pro-democracy protests? Uh, they are very active. This is really uh, incredible, especially last year when I also joined one of the protests, oh, also the January the 1st uh, protest uh, on the Hong Kong island side. There have been new members who signed in to become the union members. Uh, forever in Hong Kong history, we never see so uh, much increase in terms of the active. Uh, the activities or activeness of the trade unions. And in Hong Kong, trade unions are protected. So this is really uh, remarkable. If we know in China, there is only an 
one and only the official trade union, the ACFTU, All China Federation of Trade Unions, and that is subordinate to the party states. And in Hong Kong, by contrast, there are still multiple, really different forms, big and small, um, and different sectors. Even in terms of the construction industry, we know there have been casual labor, day laborers. It is so difficult to get organized, but they also put together the effort and register under the Hong Kong law. And their role, their central role in uh, advancing the democracy in Hong Kong, that is also well recognized. Jenny, so Jenny, we've read, we've we know about your work on especially um, South China, Chinese labor for Foxconn, uh, for export goods to the U.S. and the rest of the world. Um, I'm wondering if you could say something perhaps for our listeners who are not from China, not from Hong Kong, but are interested in these issues. Um, why should people around the rest of the world care about labor in China? Why do you, as someone in Hong Kong, care about labor in China when, as you said, you kind of have a different feeling, a different background than many of the people who grew up and live and work in mainland China. What is the basis um, and what what is the long-term goal for thinking about labor transnationally or, or, or globally? Right. Foxconn is already the world's largest manufacturing uh, industry. It is indeed the largest global uh, base, the supply base that produce our iPhone, iPads, and all these kind of uh, electronics devices. And they are huge. They got more than 1 million workers in China. And if there have been cases of young worker suicides in 2010, more than 18 uh, or at least 18 young workers who commit suicide. So we, we really have to stop thinking about what are the implications or meanings when China rises to become the second largest economy and the factory, the world factory, right, or the workshop of the world. So these are um, incredible economic growth and uh, economic miracle. I don't deny that, but what are the human costs? behind uh, these these miracle so we have seen is the huge pressure in terms of meeting the deadline what sort of measures can workers take uh, to advocate for themselves there um, you know I think this is one of the things that people here in the West are completely in the dark about I think they have a generally vague idea that working conditions in China are bad you know and that they have an idea that everything is run by uh, large corporations that only a small amount of people become extremely wealthy and that everyone else is exploited. And I think that one of the questions that I have always had, you know, having a very murky, admittedly, understanding of it is, you know, like, wh what are the ways in which workers can actually advocate for themselves or, or are they just going to be replaced? And is this a sort of much more brutal system than we might have even here in the United States? Right. Uh, I appreciate all these uh, important conversations we are having right now and I am also really glad that we have basic ideas we do know how poor some situations are and the point is not just about understanding but really creating more sustainable and long-term changes uh, there have been protests there have been um, 
really what the government would say the labor unrest in China that basically means that thousands, tens of thousands of workers, they would go out on the highway and block the traffic. So that is a really a very smart way to get the attention from the authorities. Of course, most of the time, you also get the involvement of the riot police. The police will just detain you, beat you up, and quite some labor leaders, they have been put into the jail. So there are real danger of uh, organizing and holding such a large mm -hmm. scale or even cross factory protest. But I can uh, assure you that all these actions are taking a, uh, in place every day. Um, one, well, of course, it is not the complete but how are how are like what happens to uh, somebody who tries to um, what happens to somebody who tries to organize a labor uprising? Let's say they want everybody to go stand in the highway and block the highway. Like, what happens to that organizer generally in China? Mm, it really depends. If the strategies are successful, that basically means that you got wow huge attention from Chinese media and so don't forget international media that might be a yeah. way of bargaining so everyone is watching mm -hmm. and there sometimes sometimes the local officials as well as the lawyers and some other different departments they send people to negotiate so there are indeed some compromise right here uh, to give you a discount. For example, if all the workers are actually fighting for economic compensation, so you you are not willing to give 100%, but perhaps you can make a deal. 60% take it or leave it. So it is all these times of grassroots negotiation that are happening, or what C.K. Lee, a uh, very outstanding labor scholar, uh, she would describe all these kinds of bargaining that are happening at the more micro form, mm -hmm. but it is also the, the mm. interface of the state and the people. So this is a more, you can say, short-term fix, a very quick fix. You got some money in return and the crowd will most of the time disperse almost immediately. But the other scenario could be there would be a huge army of police and they will use quite some um, degree of violence uh, to yeah. yeah to just really beat you up and um, and detain um, detain you and then have a secret uh, sentencing so it is not public you just under secret what is trial. secret what secret sentencing um, what, what, what is secret sentencing there have been worker activists who write up their direct and personal experience in the so-called black jail. Uh -huh. So that kind of black jail is indeed no one even know the destination or the locations. If this is a detention center, mm. you know where are they and you could send your lawyer on your behalf. But these are the hotels. They are the hotels or some other rental apartments that you, you know nowhere. So you cannot contact with them. It's all shut down the, up, the signal in terms of your smartphone, of course, also no computing device. So they are basically isolated. 
after all those kind of questioning or humiliation, you so-called confess or admit that you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. So that is basically what we call a black jail or some secret uh, jail or uh, sentence or trial. Um, is that a is that a common way to deal with with labor leaders in China? Like, is that is that where a lot of them end up, or is that a rare occurrence? Uh, it is a whole array of strategies. What we call uh, the absorption of protest. It could be about what I just described, but it could be also about other different forms like relational repression. So that is coming up by other political scientists. But by relational repression, it does means your parents who care you most, and then the authorities will just talk to your parents and uh, <laughs> so-called persuade you. <laughs> persuade you that what you're doing is endangering the stability of the state. So you better just, yeah, for the sake of loving us, uh, don't do that. So it is more difficult to resist (laughs) somehow. Which one's worse? Yeah. And and perhaps, (laughs) perhaps like... Jenny, do you think that... Sorry to interrupt. Do you think that since, you know, 10 years ago when I think Americans were more aware of the Foxconn situation because of the suicides at the Shenzhen factories. That's kind of what Americans, I think, have paid attention to. And then that sort of went away. Um, What has changed since then? You know, because Foxconn has become only more powerful in some ways. And under the Trump administration, as you know, you know, Foxconn was going to come to Wisconsin. And that was a sort of whole scam that never really came up with any jobs. But Foxconn, in a way, has become a kind of symbol of like how business should be done internationally. So, in your observation of what has happened on the ground in those ten years, you know, how would you how would you characterize the change for for workers? Well, in December, I was in University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I it, mm. it was such a big honor to meet with the people mm. at uh, UW Wisconsin. Well, uh, yeah, you saw it <laughs> yes, in action. And, and, <laughs> No factory. <laughs> well, they 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 have a very small scale, uh, yeah, water dumped <laughs> Tiny, uh, manufacturing yeah. facilities, and they are hiring the right. university graduates. <laughs> well, I just feel very worried about our U.S. Uh, students as well. When we have been talking about the connection, it is also not just about production and consumption, but it is also about yeah. human capital or or internship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been looking into internship also. Right. In China, the situation is the labor shortage or you can no longer get access to cheap labor, female labor, and uh, well, and also male workers to some extent. So you are facing all these challenges of higher wages. And what you have to do, you uh-huh. take you get access into the vocational school students and under the name of internship, they will be coming into Foxconn factories, assembling our iPhones or iPads, three months, six months, or even a whole year. So that is completely not so-called internship because you do not provide any skills (laughs) training, but they are much cheaper. They are much cheaper. So this is good. They are cheap because you do not take them uh, as a worker. They do not have any labor protection. So on that, on that, on that note, and a lot of the um, uh, grievances you've brought up, uh, to be blunt, 
we recently had a guest who said, if there's anywhere in the world where there could be a real radical working class movement today in 2020, it would be in China. Do you, what do you think about that? Are there prospects for this? But that could be in China, could be in Brazil, could be anywhere, as long as people are standing mm-hmm. up to fight. Uh, but I understand the rationale or assumption behind that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, China has a 1.4 billion in terms of the entire population, and the workforce is close to 1 billion. <laughs> yeah, if we add up also the older cohort, yeah, who are already in the 50s or 60s. So we're, we're really referring to a sheer size that is numerically significant. Um, whether China would be the the hope <laughs> for mm-hmm. a more radical uh, labor movement or, or even a revolution. Um, so we don't underestimate the response and the reaction of the state. There yeah. have been both carrot and stick. There have been many different layers, different levels of intervention and the breaking up of the collective power. And many, many times we have seen how brutal um, the reaction could be. Um, so it is yeah. not that optimistic either. It is not that optimistic or straightforward. Um, but I do I do have some hope in the university students. There have been the more left-wing um, yeah. uh, Marxist, or they claim themselves as Maoist, and and <laughs> and they do they do even wow get involved on sites and hand in hand singing the internationally and uh, some other songs uh, in cheering up and give not only moral support but really strategizing but all these are completely uh, suppressed uh, sooner or later why do you think students in china today are doing this well uh from their own experience also. They understand that uh, sooner or later, when they are only 20 or 21 years old, they also will get involved into the labor markets. And the job um, uh, conditions are, I would say, highly competitive. Even they themselves feel uh, or now understand much better about the idea of alienation or uh, the difficulties at the workplace. So it becomes real uh, based on their own experience. But but there are also more historical um, specificities here. Some of them, their parents, well, what we understand mm-hmm. as the late of cohort. They are laid off. They have been working in the work unit uh, in Dangwei, but now they are falling from grace. They no longer have so-called the socialist contract or the permanent job. It is the smashing of the iron rice ball. So there are right. the historical uh, significance here that their parents are also suffering. That kind of humiliation, it is more than a kind of... Uh, identity about the self-worth as a working class, as the master of the nation. And it is also the economic suffering that their parents might be in uh, 40s or 50s years of age, but they have been witnessing all these ups and downs. Um, and for others who grew up in the countryside, their parents were farmers all through their young uh, and, and more energetic 
energetic years. And we are also suffering from the fact that after China get into the WTO in 2001, and there have been the cheap influx of uh, imports. Yeah, well, and as we all know, because of the U.S. and China trade war that have been ongoing for one year, two years on now, and and we also understand the cheap imports uh, as well as the kind of agreements, how much uh, rice or soybeans and some other products that had to be exported to the U.S. So. Uh, some conversations here are really important that we are missing out the uh, huge uh, agricultural population or these new mm-hmm. and old farmers. Where yeah. are they? Uh, what, what the livelihood could be? So it is no longer just about the manufacturing sector. It is really concerning about agricultural workers too. And uh, all these are the complexities that shape the young uh, university students that they see all these dynamics and deep contradictions in China. We, we could talk about so much more. I'm sorry, but we've already <laughs> talked about so much. Well, thank you so yeah. much for what you are doing. <laughs>